Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. Corpus coming in, gold in a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. in test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Australia have done it! Australia is back on the biggest stage. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Show brought to you by our friends at Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Today, we're joined by one of Australia's most loved sports stars. Pat Rafter is a former world number one who won two Grand Slam singles titles and made the final of another two in a decorated 11-year stint on the professional circuit. In total, the athletic ponytailed Aussie claimed 11 singles crowns to go with 10 doubles titles and Davis Cup success. But... It was his enduring sportsmanship and class, regardless of the pressure, that found him a spot in our hearts. He's an Australian of the Year who has a place in the International Tennis and Sport Australia Halls of Fame. Pat Rafter, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, Sam. It's a very nice introduction, mate. <laughs> well, you wrote it. You send it to me, so I just read it out. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I neglected to mention, though, among that seemingly never-ending list of honours, one of the first Bonds undies models to grace our screens as well. Very comfy undies. Yeah, well, you know, they they got desperate and they had Sarah O'Hare on the time as well. So I thought it was pretty easy, you know, association there. <laughs> you did say in the last one, I think, that no one wants to see a 40-year-old dad in his undies. Is that right? Yeah, gee, I'm nearly 50 now. So that's made a 50-year-old. <laughs> so I'm glad, you know, listen, I had my time. It was a bit of fun at the time and it was a great association uh, straight after the tennis as well. Where do we find Pat Rafter uh, at this uh, juncture? Right now, I'm sitting on a lounge in front of the TV about to watch the tennis. And I'm up in Byron Bay, just outside of Byron Bay on 70 acres. And just enjoying life. Farm life too? Yeah, a little bit. It's more of a hobby farm. And actually, we're regenerating the rainforest. So that takes up a lot of my time. So I'm running around frantically trying to keep things alive and making sure that things are watered and animals are kept out and uh, before they can get nice and big and then... Eventually, we actually have animals come in so we can get all the koalas and wallabies and everything back into the area. Fantastic. So this is a, a, a full-time job? <laughs> it is. It doesn't pay very well. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun, though. I, I get a big kick out of it. It's, it's a funny thing because a lot of my mates say, what are you doing? I've you know, just been on the lawn for a few hours and now I'm about to go get my bobcat and move some stuff around and whip a snip. And, <laughs> and they just go, well, are you enjoying that? I said, yeah. And they go, well, I don't understand how you can enjoy that. But there is something, a lot of fun about it. I, uh, I actually I get a big kick out of it. It's a fair old contrast in where you were born. You were born a long way north of, of Byron, of course. Mining territory, Mount Isa, Queensland. The seventh of nine kids to Jim and Jocelyn Rafter. But you weren't raised there, were you? Were you raised in your Monday? Well, we did, I did a few years in Mount Isa. My parents were there for 17 years and I had eight years there. And then moved to the Sunday Coast, as you said, your Monday. And then went to school your Monday in Noosa High before I went down to Brisbane. So did about six years in your Monday as well. My mum is still there. I was just up there 
seeing her. She's still alive. And went to see her last week. And I don't know how many siblings, five maybe, saw five or so brothers and sisters. So that was good to catch up with a few of them as well. So they are still in that area. Um, but Mount Isa, I still certainly have memories of, that's for sure. Yeah. So born in, in Mount Isa out there in sort of outback Queensland, if you like, a big family. How did you find a racket, Pat? Going back, how did your relationship with racket and ball first start? Well, country towns really embraced sport. Um, out there was rugby league was very big. Uh, I was I didn't play that. I was a bit young, but I did enjoy my soccer and I played also. Well, actually, I, I competed in athletics as well, which is great. And older brothers, three I got three older brothers, and my father as well got in behind the tennis. They, they loved the tennis scene out there. And back in those days as well, I used to get former great players. It was just part of their contracts thing with Spalding and Schlesinger. You used to go to remote towns and um, and do coaching clinics. And, and tennis was it was pretty big in Mount Isa. It was thirty thousand people living there, so it wasn't a small town but we played a lot of tennis and I just followed my older brothers and I picked up a racket when I was four three or four or five maybe I can't remember that exact time but the tennis courts were just down the road so I'd run down there and just start playing and I really enjoyed that part of it as well and got into it soccer was my first passion that's for sure well once you did move from soccer to tennis and you really got into your tennis as you say I mean you didn't come from I think it's fair to say a wealthy family you had working class parents obviously nine kids as well so there's a lot of competing interests and priorities in in life how was it that your mum and dad were able to support you there must have been some challenging times in that regard yeah it was and and Tennis is not regarded as a, as a sport for struggling families, but it, it doesn't mean that you can't come through the ranks either. There, there are systems in place and, and there, there can be support out there, but you have to prove yourself and that takes a lot of work. And at times I wasn't living up, not living up, but good enough to, to make any teams or get too much support. But there was one grant from the Sunshine Coast. I remember I made a Queensland team uh, when I was 12 and I subsequently got a grant for a couple of thousand dollars, which really helped you know, and certainly helped my parents to help fund me so I went down to Brisbane when I was 14, lived with a family for six months. And then my mother moved down there with, I don't know, maybe four or five family or kids. And I um, was trained at Coops at that particular time. It was the tennis centre in, in that um, castle down near Aspley in Brisbane on the north side. And you were trained before school. Uh, you'd jump on the bus and you'd go to school and you'd train after after school. And when you were there, all the facilities... Uh, the Coops was, run, was owned by Ashley Cooper and his brother Terry Cooper. And John also, another brother, who was also a very good tennis player. So tennis was in that area and we were very lucky to have that facility to access. Um, and, and that's where I trained. And it was a really it was a lot of great players from, from Queensland who used to train there, older ones. And every now and then you'd get to hit with them. And that was my pathway. Uh, but it took me a while to, to make any tennis. Teams. In fact, I didn't really get noticed. I was really about, about 18 years of age. Um, and I mean, at that particular time also, Tennis Australia didn't have any money either. They were losing money at the Australian Open. It was popped up by the government. So you, you weren't you weren't having access to funds. So it was either you put one coach on and you probably have four four players go along with that coach. And I was part of that when I was about 18 years of age. So I was very lucky to be also exposed to them. Your mum was huge, wasn't she? I mean, she did so much for you and your siblings. Is it true, the anecdote, Patty, that she used to stick crocodiles on your clothes to make them look like Lacoste? Did that take place? Is that fact? Yeah. Yeah, so my mother was quite a good sewer, and in Mount Isa, she was part of the litwits, they were called. <laughs> She'd be part of some knitting group. As you know, she made wedding dresses. She was quite handy. So she used to make uh, my tennis shirt, and uh, I think I bought tennis shorts. And then, oh, she made probably a couple of pairs. We'd go to Kmart, pick up a pair of $10 shoes that would do me for a few months on the tennis court. And 
just to make me not feel so out of place and buy some little crocodiles and so I'm on uh, just to make myself look a bit special and feel a little bit, a little bit better about myself. <laughs> and, oh, that's great. You know, I guess you just suffer from peer grip pressure around uh, that age as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I mean, yours, well, not to harp on it, but yours was a journey that did start without much being given to you. I mean, you're able to look back now. Do you ever wonder whether you would have had the same drive, the absolute hunger that was inside you if you had had a more privileged upbringing? Yeah, I wish I could answer that question. You can't. You know, it's one of those things is a little bit like, you know, saying who's better out of Rod Laver and Roger Federer. So it's pretty hard to compare when it's not really relevant. When I got involved with Tennis Australia and I was doing uh, performance director, I was trying to make it a lot more difficult for kids to have too much given to them and and one-on-one and all that type of thing. I tried to make more of a group mentality because that was what I knew and that's what helped drive me to be a tennis player as well. And having, or not having anything actually, for me, drove it did drive me, but I loved the game. I loved the sport, and I would have presumed even if I did have uh, access to all the funds, I, was, I, I would like to think that I still could have been a player as well. I sort of had the hunger and drive. Yeah, and in those early days, as a, as a youngster, what what fueled you? Do you think, Pat? I mean, at that point, it's just purely the love of the game. I'd assume that had a lot to do with it, but. Having older brothers and sisters as well made things pretty competitive in the household. And as, as you said also, those um, times were, were tricky for us, but mum, it's also mum and dad, not for kids. You don't really feel the stress that parents are going through. But it was a pretty great thing to grow up in a large family. We had four in a room. Uh, boys and three girls in one room so and then the two younger boys came a bit later but I do remember growing up um, the three bedroom house with seven kids uh, I was the youngest at that time it was so much fun <laughs> and you don't know any any better but at the same time you do see other situations in other families you go, oh, okay that looks pretty cool I wouldn't mind having a bit of that and that can help drive you as well as a motivator so I think I had a bit of that fantastic and I think I read or heard you say one of your early motivations when you got a bit older as a, as a budding pro if you like was to be able to afford your own house exactly mate that was a big motivation as well imagine trying to pay off a loan which most people do and and I was brought up being part of that I, I was Sure, I was just going to be the general Joe Blow, probably coaching down the road and earning enough money to have a wife and a few kids and pay off a mortgage and, and you know, do go to the pub on a Friday night with your mates and, you know, do those sort of things, like sport on the weekend. That was, that was the way my life was looking for a long time. Um, things changed I don't know how but I just kept assisting with tennis and I, was, I got lucky I guess things did change you're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals a family owned business since 1934 well when it comes to change after this break Pat Rafter takes his promising talents to the world tour but it's not all smooth sailing you're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We're with Australian tennis legend Pat Rafter. Pat, you turned pro in 1991. What goes into making that sort of decision? Well, I actually had to give the, the Association of Tennis Professionals, the, the ATP, a number. Of, of, of what year I turned pro. In Australia, we don't have that. So it's this real American thing. Uh, you cannot be a pro and attend college in America. So you have to be an amateur. They always said, when did you turn pro? When did you accept 
start accepting prize money. I got my first paycheck in Gladstone when I was 13 and won 60 bucks. <laughs> so theoretically under the under that, I was, you know, I was 1984 or something, you, 85. What did you do with that 60, <laughs> what did you do with that 60 bucks, Pat? I, um, you went, so you got a coupon, $60 check, and I went to the sports store where you could cash in. I think I bought something for like a dollar and picked up 59 bucks and I probably spent on chocolate and stuff like that. <laughs> I don't know, no idea. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, well, it was what? What do you reckon? Around twelve months later, you're around three hundred in the world. You're obviously scratching around, trying to get a foothold into the pro tour. When what is now referred to as really the most pivotal moment in your career, I would assume, takes place. And am I right in saying it was in a, a Tokyo McDonald's of all places? You're travelling with your mum, and you're sitting there in Japan at a McDonald's, and it's a it's a crossroads moment, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that was a good moment in my life, actually, in, in terms of a big pressure valve release, actually. So, 92, I've been on the road, so I finished school in 89, finished the year of 1990, about 700 in the world. And then I had a couple of years around about 300 in the world. So now I'm, I'm 21, no, see, 1992, I'm 19, uh, with my mum in Asia. So I'm not part of any support group right now, so I'm mum's trying to help me out and we're six weeks into a trip in Asia going around all different towns trying to play smaller tournaments and some larger tournaments see if you can try to qualify for them and I was a real fringe player not ever recognised and thinking at 19 I'm probably too old now back then if you weren't you know making it by then you weren't really on, on the trajectory to, to being a tennis player. So 1992, I'm in Tokyo with my mum and I've lost probably first round of qualifying and um, sat down with mum. I just broke down and started crying and just said, I think I'm done. I'm just not good enough to, to make it. Uh, I feel like I've let you down, I've let the family down. You know, you put so much into it. So that's where I sit right now. And, you know, maybe I should just go and get a job and, and uh, just earn a living and and so be it. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty well... She's just trying to express to her how sorry I was. And she just said, you don't owe us anything. You know, we just enjoyed the journey and just whatever makes you happy, um, that's fine. And we'll support whatever decision you want to make. I decided that year just to, to um, I said, oh, I'll give it one more year because she was just so supportive. And I, I probably needed that outlet as well. I think I had that pent up stuff. I didn't realize how much they just supported me um, just emotionally. That way was one of the most important things um, she could have said to me at the time. So... And I guess the rest is history. The next year, I had a breakthrough and got to 50 in the world. Why did you feel like you'd let them down? You used those words, let them down, Pat. What, what was the, the, the reasoning behind that? Obviously weighing heavily on you at the time. Well, time and money spent on mm. a career that went nowhere. And when you've got eight other brothers and sisters and mum was taken away from a lot of them at a lot of times, you know, with me on weekends, we'd go and travel, you know, to Gladstone and Bundaberg and Rockhampton and Coffs Harbour, wherever it was a tournament on, I was travelling. And if I wasn't with my mum, I was on a bus, a Greyhound bus, um, getting billeted out with someone. But they were times that the family missed out because I had mum to myself. So it was, I guess that was the guilt that I was feeling. As you say, the next 12 months, it was the circuit breaker. Your first singles title was in Manchester 94. Was it emotional? Um, it was great. I don't know if it was emotional. I'm, <laughs> I'm not really that emotional with a lot of things, but certain things will really get to me. But mm. that that type of thing, no, not really. It was, it was an unbelievable experience and, and feeling that I won a tournament, though. 
Yeah, I reckon it would have been. And then, but but prior to '97, it remained your only ATP title. But then, of course, came the U.S. Open and the, and the huge coming of age moment. You beat Greg Rosetsky in the final, the first non-American winner at the U.S. Open, I think, since Stefan Edberg in 1992. You're on the Late Show with David Letterman. Was it all a bit surreal? Yeah, that that's all a blur. Uh, you know, the the build-up is, is is what it all is, and the '95-'96 uh, was a bit of a, a tough time, as you. See. He said I didn't really have a career tournament over that time, but it was all about you know growing, training hard, preparing, being fitter, being stronger, and I was just working on my game for those couple of years. And I was and I was making enough money to get by. You know, it, was, it wasn't as if I was digging into my pocket. I was doing still pretty well in doubles. I was picking up you know a few hundred grand a year, and that was enough to pay my way around. I wasn't saving anything, but it was it was still. Uh, um, you know, enough to keep me going. And I, I guess 97 was a byproduct of all those tough years and, and how hungry I became um, during those couple of years and how much I really wanted to have success. So that 97 year, I made six finals. I lost all six finals. Mm-hmm. And then the Austin US Open came along. I remember talking to, to John Newcomb and I was warming up with Rochi because Newcomb Rochi were the Davis Cup captain and coach. I had no coach and I was just um, tapping into whatever Davis Cup was there and, and that was great support by Nuke and Rochi and I just said to Nuke I said gee I'm, I'm actually pretty nervous I haven't lost to Vizetsky you know and I, I feel I've beaten him four times previously I think and I said I, I'm sort of nervous all the you know I've lost six finals and you know, this is a bad omen um, and he just said a few words to me he said you know you're playing great you're too good for this guy you'll be right and uh, that's all I need to hear and Sort of rest is history then. I was going to ask you about Tony Roach a little bit later on. He obviously coached you from 97 pretty much until the end of your career. How profound was his influence? I mean, does a tennis coach have to be more than a tennis coach in, in many ways, given you're on the road all the time? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you have people along the way, which, you know, they do vital things to your game. So from word go, um, a coach in, in I, I, I would like to say a few names. So Gavin Yarrow in Nambour uh, at the tennis courts there was, you know, taught me to, to love tennis and, and taught me the, the fundamentals of the game and then moved down to Brisbane uh, with um, at Coops Tennis Centre with Richard Howes and Wayne Hampson, who Wayne played a bit on the tour. And these type of guys, you know, th- th- those type of guys really help shape your game. They don't get much recognition. They're behind the scenes sort of blokes that, that love being a tennis coach and um, don't get, you know, the sort of talked about names that they, sh- they should because they put a lot of time into it. And then uh, Gary Stickler, who was, who was really big, who's done a lot of work with Johnny Millman as well. These type of people are, are, are gateways you know, to, to your career and, and the reason why you are where you are. And then Bob Carmichael, um, who tragically passed away, not, you know, about eight years, ten years ago now, but he um, he was probably he really shaped my game and got me in how to play against men. And then when Rochi came on board in '94, he was a Davis Cup coach. I tapped a lot into to spending time with Rochi, and he's just perfect. You know, he works you really hard. He just doesn't skip anything. But at the same time, you have a lot of fun, and it's really important to have that balance. And I always had balance in my tennis career. And you know, when times were down, Rochi would say, "Mate, you're out. Go out and have." Get yourself, have a few too many beers for me, will you? You know, you need to get away from it. And that stuff's important, isn't it? I, just rewind back to 97 and that breakthrough Grand Slam, if you can, Pat, at the US Open. It wasn't all love, though, was it? I think it shocked a lot of the so-called experts. John McEnroe called you a one-slam wonder. And I, I think early the next year, Pete Sampras was asked about the difference between the two of you, and he said 10 Grand Slams. Both right. <laughs> you know, both, well, Johnny Mack didn't prove to be right, but... 
at the time, I was sort of sitting there going, yeah, I, yeah, I sort of, I thought I was a bit of a flash in the pan as well. Coming along, I didn't have any expectations of being Grand Slam. You know, they're, they're dreams. That's not reality. So when dreams sort of come true, things become very blurry and you're wondering if you're living or you're dreaming. You know, I have no regrets what Johnny Mac said. And then with Pete, same thing. You know, Pete was a lot better than me. We just had a bit of a rivalry going and 98, I had a few wins over him. I've been three times that year. So he was getting a bit peeved off with me and um, I, I probably fueled it a little bit too and probably just round him up and not a good person to wind up. Well, you got him in that US Open semi-final the next year, which must have carried enormous satisfaction for you on the way to a second consecutive crown. Did you take any extra joy in that one though? Yeah. I did. Always enjoyed being Pete because he beat him <laughs> so many times. Any win you got against him was great. You know, he was. He was a lot better player. Um, and he was just having a rough year in 98, but it suited me fine. By 1999, Pat, you're number one in the world. How did you celebrate? Did you mark the occasion? <laughs> well, so I guess you have to understand how the ranking system works. It sort of works over a year basis. So in it could be the first week of June. So what happened the first week of June the year before? You're either defending points or you're losing points or you haven't got points coming off and you have a good week. So these sort of things just roll uh, as, as the year goes along. So I was close quite a few times. I think I had to beat Gustavo Quirton Rome final at the Italian Open in 99. I lost that. Then I had to beat Andre Agassi in the semifinals of Wimbledon in 99. Uh, I lost that. That was to be number one. So what had happened after that was I had um, had a couple of weeks off after Wimbledon, but my points were all sort of really close to Sampras at that particular time. And I was having, we played Davis Cup on 99, sorry, in Boston against America. And the next week, Sampras had points coming off, which he wasn't playing that week. And that was enough points coming off from, from the year before to give me the number one ranking. So I went back to Bermuda, uh, where I was living, and that was a week that I had off. I had one week off after Davis Cup before my next tournament started. And so my week off was the number one. And then I went, when I went back to the tournament the following week, I was already back at number two because it must have been how the points worked from the year before. I must have had some points coming off as well. <laughs> So I never actually played a tournament ranked number one. I was having a holiday. I was only there for one week. The <laughs> best way to do it. Hey, don't, don't, no room for humility here, Pat, okay? You were number one in the world. It's, it's, there, it's there in black and white. But from afar, though, and this speaks a bit to that, you look like someone who had perspective. I mean, you had the blinkers on to some degree to reach your level, of course. But how conscious were you of keeping your head, you know, somewhat out of the tennis bubble that we see consume so many? Um... I think I was pretty well in there, pretty tight. You know, I wasn't great to be around when I was playing tennis. You know, I could be incredibly moody and grumpy. I definitely had a different persona when I had to go outside or in, in the media, and, and I, I dealt with that fine. You know, they, they were two different worlds, and I was able to, to mm. separate those two, the media and also uh, the tennis world. Um, so I was just reliving some of the stories the other day, and I thought, oh, my God, how do my mates and my brother and my girlfriend and my wife now deal with me at that particular time um, I'm glad they stuck around because it, it can be rather stressful You're with This Is Your Sporting Life brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives just jump online to visit tobinbrothers.com.au Well if the hard courts of New York brought joy the grass of Wimbledon brought pain Paddy Rafter takes us to England after this break You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with two-time US Open champion Pat Rafter. 
Pat, the serve volley game, it's virtually extinct nowadays, but how did you come to embrace it as your playing style? Oh, so much fun. You know, coming to the net and jumping around and getting in people's face. I don't know, I just loved it. It was the way you played, you know, back in the 70s, how you got brought up to play. And not everyone played that way. In fact, even when I played, I guess you're right, there weren't a lot of serve volleyers at that particular time. But I was brought up learning how to play a classic serve volley game. So like Pat Cash had a classic serve volley game. Stefan Edberg had a really great serve volley game. Someone like Becker and Sampras was a little different, had such massive serves. Um, They were built more around their serving. Ours was about placement of serve, get tight to the net, make the first volley deep in the corner, cover the court. That was the way we were taught how to play a serve and volley game. And I guess that's another reason why I did develop late in terms of tennis success, because you have to be a big, strong man to play that. And Becker, we saw when he was 17, was a big unit when he won Wimbledon. I was a boy at 17, comparatively in size. You know, it took me to my early 20s before I was, um, you know, a bigger, strong enough man to play that style of game and a good enough athlete. And that's what it requires. And I worked hard at that. And I was lucky enough to be a good enough athlete to play that style of game. We had a lot of grass around then as well, you know, in Brisbane, you know, a lot were played on grass. And I was just going to ask you, are you invested enough? You might not be, but are you invested enough in the modern game to be saddened by the fact that not many players play with that strategy, that approach, that philosophy? It is nice to see. If I do get to watch someone play who, who does do a bit of serve and volley, it is fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't get to see it as much, um, as I understand it. The, the game has slowed down quite a lot. It, it's, it's probably for good reason in some ways. I mean, you know, the tallest guy on tour, we did have a six foot eight guy, but it was one of them. And, you know, and six foot two, six foot three was a big man um, in the 90s. Everyone's six foot five now. And you've got half a dozen guys, six eight, six ten to seven foot, you know, who are playing. So the game, the court sort of looks different to a, you know, they see it the way I the way we see it and the way we played it. But you know, still the best players in the world are six foot one, six foot two, Nadal, Federer, Nadal, Federer, Djokovic. You know, mm. they're they're not big men, not like uh, you know, the six foot five type player like, you know, your curious type player. Take us to the two thousand Wimbledon final against Pete Sampras. Now the word chokers is probably as cutting as any in sport, but you freely labelled yourself with that tag, didn't you? And it and it centered mm. on the second set tiebreak. Well, you just gotta admit it. You know, sometimes there's no use trying to cover it up. And I know what I felt. And the the result was a choke. Pete was whinging about an ankle injury, which he had. um, But he was was fine, you know, in some ways. But he probably wasn't at 100%. So I knew that in the back of my mind. He was sort of struggling a little bit with uh, that. And I won the first set. I thought it was pretty good. So the 2000 final were also coming off a, um, a shoulder surgery in 99 and I just didn't know how I would go coming back into tennis and all of a sudden in a Wimbledon final, which to me was the ultimate of tennis as well. You know, this is a, the holy grail of tennis in my mind. You know, everything's going okay. Won the first set, a lot of work to do. And the second set comes along, things are cruising, get to the tiebreaker and I break his serve twice to go up in, in the tiebreaker to go up 4-1. They're called mini breaks. So I'm up two mini breaks. And on grass, back then it's pretty quick. I'm going, oh my God, this is it. I've got this match. Hmm. I'm going to win the second set. Pete is not going to be able to compete because he's going to have that niggly thing in the back of his mind. It's all going to get too hard. I had him and I knew it. And that knowing made me just tighten up. So I put a pretty average first serve in because I was, you know, I, I remember my heart rate being just going through the roof. Um, just out of pure adrenaline and put an average serve in, put an AK volley in. He passes me, well done. 4-2, change ends, no worries. Get around there, I do a double fault, which I rarely double fault. 
That's a joke, 4-3. Feeling pretty flat now. Pete puts in a big serve out wide, and I reflex an unbelievable return to his toes. He pops up in the middle of the court. I had a forehand in the bottom of the net, tried to pass him. I went, oh, this is lots of trouble now. So uh, I just couldn't control my emotions and went on to lose that set. So what happens, and this is uh, how I would imagine how drugs sort of work in your system, you spike and then you become incredibly flat. And that's the way I felt. I was just hard, just trying to pick myself up for the next set, um, having that massive spike of adrenaline thinking I'm going to win Wimbledon. Yeah. yeah. So that all happened and all of a sudden it's over. And then the next year, 2001, now you were supremely confident and so you should have been against Goran Ivanisevic. He was unseated. He's given a wild card. Now, you won't, don't need any reminding. You won at 9-7 in the fifth. It doesn't go close to doing the gravity of this match justice. I mean, there was incredible tension. The atmosphere was remarkable, the noise. I mean, to what degree has this match stayed with you, Pat? I get reminded whenever I see him. Um, <laughs> he makes a point of it. <laughs> <laughs> He's such a dick. He's a good bloke. I'm a big fan of Goran. Yeah, it, um, it stays me a little bit. It's stayed me for the first 10 years. It's been 20 years now. Yeah. Sam, I like to think I've forgotten a little bit of Yeah, it. of course. But, you know, it, was, it, was a, it wasn't a great tennis match. It was just a, a really good spectacle on two guys trying to win their first Wimbledon and had equal amount of craziness going on. The crowd was a Monday final. Oh. Aussies everywhere. There was Croatians. There was passionate Goran fans. And it was singing for three and a half hours. That's what it was like. And it was pretty amazing feeling. But as I said, the tennis was pretty average. But it got tight in the end. Um, and then I had an occasion, Love 30 on his serve at 5-4. And he came up with a couple of really great serves, actually, on second serves, which really shocked me. And, you know, full credit to Goran. He, he took it away from me there at the end. But it would I would have loved to, the result to be different. I mean, I think winning Wimbledon would have just been the greatest. Yeah, I imagine that one would have hurt as much as any. And, and it would actually turn out to be the last time you played at Wimbledon yet you were typically graceful in defeat at a really dark moment for yourself. I mean, the sportsmanship that became such a big part of your story, where did it come from, Pat, particularly in a sport that can be lonely, a huge mental aspect to it, as we've touched on, and yet regardless of the pressure that you you managed to stay or seemed to stay true to, to those principles, how did you do that? Well, it's family. You know, my father pulled me off the court a couple of times. You know, you just learn these things along the way. You've got to be gracious in defeat. And, you know, my coaches, you know, along the way also helped me deal with that. It was a learning process over many years. And when you get to that situation, you know, you're shattered. But what are you going to do? I'm not going to sit there and act like a spoiled brat. You've got to accept that, you know, that's the result. It's all over now. Get on with it. Um, and as I said, Goran's a good mate of mine too. And I've, I've, uh, I, know I, I have sincere happiness for him except not against me. Um, but there was a part of it that I, I was happy for him as well. But at the time, yeah, mate, it was, it was, um, it was tough. Um, but it just comes down to, you know, I guess how you get brought up and that's how you deal with things. Yeah, the old man yanking you off the court. You don't forget that in a hurry, I wouldn't have thought. Mm, that was embarrassing. That was shocking. I deserved it. That humility, though, I mean, this is a bit off topic, but I was told just doing some research before we spoke, is it true, this story, it might be urban legend, that you were once staying at the same place as the Carlton great Steve Silvani? It might have been in Noosa, and you were with a group of friends. You were debating about how to ask him for a kick of the footy. Is that a true story? And you did it in the end? Steve, well, where I lived in Noosa when I retired, uh, yeah, when I finished, moved back to Noosa and Steve was across the road and he's still got the apartment there. We're just talking about him last weekend, actually, because his son, I think, is playing, right? Yep. Doing pretty well. Yeah. And um, Steve and Joe, and I used to see him around every now and then. 
Now, did I ask him? I, I can't really remember that story, but maybe. But I did actually have a game, a few games of AFL when I retired as well. I played for uh, the North Shore Bombers, which was a Essendon Sydney feeder club. Played reserve grade. Had absolute ball. It was <laughs> hilarious. Centre forward? Uh, they did put me centre half forward. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know whether the guy was running forward or backwards. What a horrible <laughs> position. Um, put me in full forward. That was, I didn't quite know there. And then I actually really enjoyed it out in the wing because I was tall and I was still really fit and I was moving pretty well. I could take the marks over the little fellas. So, yeah, I actually really enjoyed it. Fantastic. Now, just come back to the tennis, uh, pardon me. You, you officially retire in, in January 2003, I think at the age of 30. It, it was seen to be young then. It's obviously younger now given the longevity we see in so many athletes. So why did you pull the pin when you did, Pat? Actually, I finished when I was 28. 28. 2001. Right. Mm, just a little bit early. I was about to turn 29. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 there were moments in my life I'm just going, what am I doing getting upset about? chasing a yellow tennis ball around the court. Now, I've pretty well reached all my dreams and aspirations. My body is hurting a little bit as well. My shoulder's got problems. I want to be able to kick a footy with my boy, you know, when he's 15 and throw a, you know, throw a ball around and with, with my kids, which I'm able to do now, which you know, my son's 18, my daughter's 15. I, I guess I just had all these moments where I went, well, what am I doing? Um, and I didn't, I felt like I was sort of beating a dead horse in a way um, and not getting the passion and love out of it like I used to so I realised 2001 was going to be my last year and I don't regret that for a second and we did I did try to come back mm. in May Rochi and Newt called me up and said come on let's get ready for Wimbledon so I started training and on the fifth day I was down at Rochi's in Sydney um, I was training at his house and I rang him up on the fifth day and said Rochi I'm not coming in mate I'm, I'm definitely done I, I don't want to have this feeling anymore where you can't get out of bed you're sore your ankles hurt your knees hurting everything everything's in pain and uh and, and that was uh, i knew definitely then but retirement for me i already checked out before in 2001 we're talking to pat rafter on this is your sporting life thanks to tobin brothers funeral celebrating lives we'll be back after this to wrap up with one of australia's greatest sportsmen pat rafter you're listening to this is your sporting life with sam edmund for tobin brothers funerals celebrating lives Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tennis icon Pat Rafter has been our guest today. Pat, tennis is made for rivalries. We've touched on Pete Sampras. Was he your biggest? Who was your biggest rivalry? He's my worst rivalry. <laughs> it was it was horrible. I got my ass kicked by Leighton many, many times. That wasn't much fun. Andre was the one that I really enjoyed playing the most. We we contrasted really well. I served and volleyed. He, you know, stood on, stood his ground on the baseline, and, and and it was entertaining. You know, I knew when I played him that win, lose, or draw, people were going to have fun watching it. So that was great. I always enjoyed playing anyone on clay as well, because although clay wasn't my favourite surface, I enjoyed serve volleying, and they never got to see that very much. And I had some okay success on clay, not not great. I just um, like playing any baseliner on clay and just trying to come to the net on them and just really upsetting them and annoying them. So, but playing. Andre was a bit of a highlight. And I think he says the same about you, that you brought out the best in him, he says as well. The, the tennis player of today, Pat, how have they changed on and off the court? Uh, I'm not around tennis enough to to give a really accurate, but how I see it, I, I can give you that, that 
of opinion on that. The, the the game has changed because obviously guys are bigger. Um, the technology and the string has really changed the way the guys can create pace and power in their technique. We were brought up, you know, when I got brought up with wooden rackets and obviously that changed as time went on. So we, we, we had a certain style to our game and there's a lot of feeling the ball around and putting in the corners and finessing and, and that type of thing as well. These guys got brought up bashing it, hitting the ball hard. They, you know, they're just great. The ball striking of these guys, they just smack the crap out of it. Mm. Um, it's pretty impressive to watch. So, And they're, they're big, strong men, and they're fitter. Just everyone plays great tennis now. Uh, we've had some weaknesses and guys say, oh, yeah, it's a pretty good draw. We had a, they're going to get a good draw here. But those guys, you know, they, um, they they seem to all hit the ball really well. But the courts have changed a little bit slower, uh, so it makes it harder to serve and volley you to serve and volley uh, as well. So that doesn't help that style of game. Off the court, we've got social media. I just feel so sorry for these guys and girls who have to deal with it. Um, you just can't get away from it. It's no no misbehaving at all. We used to, we used to misbehave. It was fun. <laughs> Loved it. We're being kids. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just staying off the court for a moment, is there an expectation of this generation of tennis player? And I'm speaking about maybe Australian players here as much as any, an expectation or maybe even a toxic expectation of these boys and girls that may not have been there to the same degree or extent when you were coming through? Uh, how do you mean toxic? Toxic expectation. Well, that the expectations are unfairly high from a very young age. We expect we we just expect rather than hope to, of them to be tennis players yeah, and good ones, or to be role models to, and to be role models as well. You yeah, know. yeah, everything, the full package. Yeah, I don't know about that. I think um, maybe social media has probably changed that a little bit. I don't know, but I I don't think it's too unfair to expect a certain amount of role model from from all our Australian athletes, whether it's tennis or, or any sport you get paid really well and you've got to understand that you've also got to live up to a certain expectation that's the way i see it not i don't think they see it that way and we're also uh, I, had a, I had a lot of respect for the guys who came before me i had a lot of respect for my family that i wouldn't behave in a certain way and drag them through it uh, me behaving in a certain way and also you know, as I said the people who came before me you know you're living up to an australian uh, it was a pretty tough role in in some ways but in other ways it was it was a great example that they set us you know all the way from later oh we use that in Roswell and Nuke and Rochi and Fitzgerald and Masur and all those guys you know, I, I felt I felt like I, had, I owed them something as well yeah no well said and the other side of it that I guess when you were playing you know you missed the 99 Davis Cup final you had a, you had injury and, and the shoulder problem never gave you a chance of making it really a genuine chance anyway three consecutive US Open crowns I mean at that level I'd imagine the ups are euphoric and the downs are borderline depressing how did you handle the setbacks and, and the resilience required I suppose and forward in dealing with those things? Loss is part of it. I lost early. I lost when I was young. I lost all the time. I had probably more trying times when I was 12, uh, 14, 15, 16 than when I was, you know, having a, having a loss in the final of a Grand Slam. When you put that in perspective, that's not a bad thing. If you said to a 14-year-old kid, you're going to make the final of Wimbledon, maybe, but you're going to lose. You're okay with that? Yeah, I'll take that if that's mm. okay. So, you know, you always got to reflect back on on, on the old days and what you were hoping for and the dreams that actually came true. The US Open crowns, the number one ranking, the, the halls of fame, the naming even of Pat Raft Arena in Brisbane. What do you hold most dear, Pat? I mean, what, what's on the top step of the podium for you, the memory that you perhaps come back to more than the others when you think back to this other chapter in your life? Yeah, well, I, I feel like I've relived really a couple of lives in some ways. So the tennis life was 
you know, you, you, know, you had your childhood and you're growing up to be a tennis player. So that, 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 that's your work life. And I was able to finish that when I was young. So that, that was that side of it. And obviously winning a Grand Slam was a highlight, a, a massive highlight. And then when you finish tennis, actually life starts. You, you're in a bubble, as you said, and it's time to get in. I, I realised at a young age, it's time to get out. And I, I wanted to be part of something different. I wanted to see what life was all about. And, you know, having children, being Australian of the Year, probably been the highlights of my life in, in my second stage of my life. I don't want to put them together. They're, they're, to me, they're two different parts of um, how, I've, how I've gone through my career and, and who I am as a person. And now on the land up there at Byron Bay, do, do the wife and kids just marvel at Dad, the horticulturalist? No. Thank they, they shake their head too. go, what are you doing? <laughs> I don't know. Either. I lift. I put podcasts in. I put story books in, and I have a ball, mate. I just go out and I whip us. It doesn't matter. I've got stories going on in my mind all the time. Learning a lot. Really enjoying. Learn a bit about myself as well. And just uh, really enjoy the Byron crew. I've got a group of about oh, twenty, thirty odd blokes here. I work out with uh, twice a week. I run breathing training, and we play some. Uh, we do physical games, and we all bond and get together and have something to eat after it. Really good for a lot of blokes here, including myself. Anyone that the listeners would know in the in the Byron Bay crew. Well, we had Justin Kaziski here. Um, Cosy went back to Albury the other day, and he he trained for a couple of years with us. Uh, Brad Sewell, Sewell, he's absolutely killing it out there on, uh, in the training. He's he's hilarious. We have a lot of fun. Um, Smitty, Steve Smith, and Adam Zampa pop in every now and then. They do a couple of workouts. It's a lot of fun. Good good bunch of blokes. Pat Rafter, great to catch up today. You're an Australian sporting legend. You reached the top of a very competitive international sport, but more than that, through the ups and the downs, you displayed as we said unwavering sportsmanship and you carried yourself with a style and a grace that won you so many admirers well done again on all you achieved thanks so much for joining us good on you Sam that was fun thanks mate and thanks for joining us also you've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives jump online to find tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.